Well, thank you very much for, for inviting me along. And this is the, the second uh, event that I'm doing here this week, because uh, yesterday evening I had a delightful time uh, with the youth group uh, doing a Q&A session, uh, and they asked some darn good questions. <laughs> so you've got a lot to live up to uh, tonight. Um, I've somewhat uh, pretentiously entitled this uh, talk uh, The Waning of Naturalism and the waxing of natural theology. Um, really what I want to do is just give you a, a, a whistle-stop tour of some recent developments uh, in the ongoing dialogue between a naturalistic view of the world, a materialistic view of the world, and uh, a supernatural, or more specifically, uh, theistic uh, view of the world, particularly uh, in terms of recent scientific Discoveries and how that is playing into uh, a lot of the conversation, uh, as we'll see. So I hope um, I will sort of just dip our toes into a number of different areas, perhaps spark your interest in some of the, the current discussion there, perhaps add some uh, books to your reading lists. And uh, interestingly, or I hope interestingly for you tonight, I'll be quoting from quite a few recent publications by atheist and agnostic uh, philosophers and scientists um, that I think are um, indicative of uh, interesting developments in this area. I don't want to make too much of these developments. You know, I'm not predicting uh, that the uh, kingdom of God is about to uh, sweep the earth, uh, as it were. But nonetheless, I think we live in interesting times in terms of this dialogue between naturalism and theism. I was rather astonished to uh, read uh, a review. This was a, a review of um, Alistair McGrath's new biography of C.S. Lewis. And it was a review uh, in the Times Literary Supplement in June this year by a very famous British agnostic philosopher, uh, Sir Anthony Kenny. And during the course of this uh, review, Kenny just dropped in this remark. There are signs that naturalism is collapsing under its own weight. And when uh, a significant agnostic British philosopher like uh, Sir Anthony says something like that, I think our ears uh, should prick up in interest. What is naturalism? Uh, philosophers you discover now, if you haven't before, love defining things. Keeps everything neat and tidy. Um, so, just to be clear what we're talking about, what is naturalism? It is the dominant worldview in academia. I would say that's fair to say. And it's been the dominant worldview in academia since somewhere around about the, the mid-20th century. Um, before that, uh, it was not dominant. Um, if I were somewhat cheekily to put things using the kind of rhetoric that certain new atheist writers might use, I might say something like this, um, that naturalism is a philosophy made up by a bunch of pre-scientific ancient Greeks and accepted by about 2% of people. It's certainly the case that for the majority of mankind, uh, the intuitively plausible view of the world is that there's more to it uh, 
than the naturalists would want us to think. And indeed, even most naturalists, I think, would say that their viewpoint isn't necessarily the most intuitively plausible view of the world. Rather, the naturalist is in the position of saying something like this. I know intuitively it seems like there's more to the world than this, but actually I think there isn't, and you should agree with me, for the following reasons. And that they actually owe uh, the majority of mankind who think that there is some kind of supernatural dimension to reality, um, some kind of reason uh, for uh, reducing our account of reality to that account that's consistent with a naturalistic view of things. And as we'll see, I think there are interesting admissions going on at the moment about the failure of naturalism to live up to that burden of proof that it should properly shoulder. So I just want to highlight that sometimes when I perhaps show some quotes and things and say, look, here's an atheist philosopher admitting that naturalism is having real problems explaining X or Y or whatever that is, I'm not laying the groundwork for some kind of God of the gaps argument from ignorance that says... Oh, look, we can't explain X in naturalistic terms. Therefore, there's a God. Um, Because making that therefore leap without a justifying reason means that that's an invalid argument. To have a valid argument, a logically well-constructed argument, you have to have at least two truth claims about reality that lead you to a conclusion. Um, But what I'm really setting up here is saying, actually, it's the naturalist who who should be shouldering the burden of proof here, and here are some admissions that they haven't even shouldered that burden of proof. Um, So it's it's them that are owing us and failing to give us the argument that's that's needed. Um, But I'll also perhaps drop in uh, some more positive constructions of um, some of the arguments for the existence of God as we go through. Atheist philosopher Julian Bugini says that naturalism is a, a belief that there is only the natural world and not any supernatural one. The atheist philosopher Alex Rosenberg says that naturalism is this idea that physics is causally closed and causally complete. That physical causes are the only kind of causes that there are. And there's nothing outside of the system of physical causes that could intervene within that system. Because, well, there is nothing outside of the system of physical causes to do any intervening. So the only sensible way of explaining anything, given that view of the world, is in terms of physical objects having certain relationships causally with one another, full stop. And it's the full stop that's the crucial bit of naturalism, because, of course, you can be a supernaturalist without denying that there's a physical world. Theists think that there is a physical world. They just don't think that there's a physical world, full stop. It's there's a physical world, comma, and it was made by God. See? 
It is the belief that reality is an uncreated, closed physical system. And what we mean by our physical system is clearly something like it's an impersonal, a non-personal reality that doesn't have intentions. It's an impersonal, unintentional reality. Uh, Because intentionality and, and personhood... Uh, seem to go together like a cup and a saucer. It's also generally linked with faith, and I use the word advisably, in an empirical scientific methods as the only, or maybe the, the primary way of understanding the truth about reality, that science is the only way to know anything about anything. That often goes hand in hand with a naturalistic view although they don't perhaps necessarily do so. So here's uh, Alex Rosenberg in his recent uh, very stimulating and provocative book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, saying, here's my worldview. Is there a God? No. What's the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? Anything goes. I think that's a pretty good description of a a consistent, naturalistic understanding of reality from Alex Rosenberg. But is naturalism waning or crumbling or under some tension at the moment? Philosopher Gary Habermas, who's a Christian, says that just as idealism gave way to naturalism earlier in the 20th century, naturalism may now be losing its position of supremacy as a worldview. The atheist Quentin Smith uh, wrote a famous journal article a number of years ago Uh, which highlighted the uh, influx of uh, talented students in philosophy, into the philosophy departments, particularly in America, uh, of theists going into the discipline of philosophy. And he reckoned that perhaps one quarter or one third of philosophy professors are theists, with most being orthodox Christians. And he was complaining about this. Now, actually, other surveys would indicate that that Smith is is over-exaggerating the number of theists in philosophy there. Um, But it's an indication of sort of how worried he is by what has been an influx into the discipline. Uh, Quentin Smith laments, academia has now lost its mainstream secularisation. If naturalism is the true worldview, and a dark age means an age where the vast majority of philosophers and scientists don't know the true worldview, then we have to admit that we're living in a dark age. 
That's particularly when you take into account not only the numbers of, of theists and so on in the discipline, but the number of, of people who would be agnostic on the issue, who wouldn't actually hold to uh, the worldview that Smith would like them to. Now, you will, of course, know about this publishing phenomena of the 21st century, the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and A.C. Grayling and Lawrence Krauss and so on. It was an article in Wired magazine that dubbed them the new atheism, uh, and Gary Wolf described them as the new atheists who condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion's not only wrong, it's evil. It's not just an intellectually mistaken position, it's bad for society and so needs to be fought against. That's the, the new atheist position. Um, it's a position that, of course, gets other atheists tearing their hair out because they think the new atheists give atheism a bad name, and uh, yeah, they do. Um, but then we as Christians know what it's like to have people who are kind of in the same worldview as us, but really annoy us as well. Um, let no names be mentioned. But here's another publishing phenomenon of the 21st century, a steady trickle of books such as these from atheists, former atheists, and agnostics with titles like this. There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind by Anthony Flew. Thomas Nagel's Mind and Cosmos why the neo-Darwinian picture of the world is almost certainly false, by atheist Thomas Nagel. Seeking God in science, an atheist defends intelligent design theory, by atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton. Hume's abject failure, a book on David Hume's arguments against the believability of the miraculous, by atheist philosopher John Ehrman. The Existence of God by Eugene Nagasawa. The Deniable Darwin by agnostic David Belinsky. Um, what Darwin Got Wrong by Jerry Fodor. Raymond Tallis's Aping Mankind or Darwinian Fairy Tales by David Stove. Or James Lafanu's Why Us? How Science Rediscovered the Mystery of life. They haven't perhaps made as big a headline as the neo-atheist publishing wave, but nonetheless, what an what a interesting collection of titles from atheist, agnostic, and in one case, atheist turned theist, Anthony Flew. Haberas says that the current revival of theistic arguments in, in philosophy from the analytical philosophy tradition and from contemporary science as well, is yet another sign of the current dissatisfaction with naturalism. The last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology or arguments for God, says the American philosopher William Lane Craig. Alvin Plantinga, um, today's foremost philosopher of religion uh, from the US, um, says there are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God. And here's just a few books to spark your interest again uh, in works to perhaps to pursue. At uh, one end, uh, this uh, is a sort of collection of uh, peer review level material 
if you're a PhD student, the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. If you want an introduction uh, for Christians uh, about these kind of issues, there are some copies of my Faithful Guide to Philosophy at the back of the room. Um, Let's look at a little time. I mentioned um, that sort of idea that science is the only way to know anything. It's an idea called scientism. Not science, but scientism. It attributes exclusive rights over knowledge to empirical or scientific verification. Uh, Alex Rosenberg, again, he says this. He says, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. That is why we are so confident about atheism. Well, Richard Dawkins, I'm not going to go through this whole quote, but here he basically says, if you can know anything about anything, it always comes back to your five senses. Perhaps extended through, say, a telescope or a microscope, or extended through the idea of having a scientific model that makes predictions that you can test through your microscope or your telescope or with your five senses... But, as he says at the end there, ultimately, it always comes back to our senses, one way or another. That's how we know any fact about reality. Peter Atkins. Uh, I was at a, an event at Conway Hall in uh, uh, London uh, a little while ago uh, and debated uh, Peter Atkins uh, and another atheist on the issue of scientism. You can find the videos up on, on YouTube on my, uh, through my page again. Um, Peter Atkins is a very staunch supporter of scientism. In his book On Being, he says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. Well, that's a load of baloney, basically, for a number of reasons. First of all, think of this, that the scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence, by scientific empirical data to back it up. Otherwise, it's not something that you can claim to rationally believe, not something you can claim to know. Okay? Well, that demand itself is a self-contradiction. It doesn't live up to its own standard. It puts forward a standard for when can you rationally claim to know something. But it doesn't meet that standard itself. It makes this kind of self-exception in order to stand. If you applied it to itself, it wouldn't meet its own criteria. It wouldn't be able to pass its own test. Indeed, it entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. Because what you'd really be saying is, well, should I do, I, do I know this? Should I believe this? Is this a rational belief? What I need to ask is, is there empirical evidence that supports believing it? Okay, so here's A, should I believe it? Well, I need B, empirical evidence that supports it. Okay, B, well, it looks like empirical evidence that supports A, but... Of course, I shouldn't ever claim to rationally know anything unless I've got evidence in support of that claim. So in order to rationally claim that B is evidence that supports A, I must have some rational evidence for that claim. Let's call that C. 
Now, yeah, from the titters of laughter in the audience, you can see that after a while, I'm going to be outside in the churchyard, <laughs> um, digging myself further and further into this problem. Um, actually, in order to know anything, there must be some things that we know without having to have reasons for it. Some, there must be something that we can argue from without having to argue for it. Because if you had to argue for everything before you could argue for anything, you could never argue for anything. You'd just be dropping yourself further and further down into this sort of infinitely deep well of scepticism. So it's a self-contradictory idea, scientism, and it's also, perhaps easier to, to see, open to obvious counterexamples. So, okay, science is a discipline that's going to do a pretty good job of telling me how much arsenic do I need to put into my Aunt Matilda's teapot <laughs> at breakfast in order to stand a high probability of inheriting her country estate by lunch? Can science tell me whether or not that's something that I ought or ought not to do? You can just describe, but it can't prescribe. Uh, it can describe how I do behave, or perhaps how people in that situation on average might behave, but it can't tell us whether or not they should behave that way. So, the claim I shouldn't poison my Aunt Matilda for selfish ends isn't a claim that I can justify through empirical investigation. Nevertheless, doesn't it seem to be the case that I'm perfectly within my rational rights to say that this truth claim, I shouldn't poison my Aunt Matilda for purely selfish ends, is true, is something that I know. So there's something I know that I clearly don't know through science. Indeed, Science as a communal project relies upon people adhering to certain moral values, like honesty in reporting of your research and so on. Um, you couldn't do science unless you had some moral knowledge. Um, or perhaps even more clearly, you couldn't do science unless you knew how to argue rationally. And yet, Science can't justify, can't prove to you what are the correct rules of logic by which arguments should work because to do science you need to rely upon those rules of logic. So if you try to use science to justify logic you'd be arguing in a circle. You just need to know that you know, if Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, then Socrates is mortal. And that any argument with the same structure is one where the conclusion really does follow from the premises. You just need to know that in order to do science. So you certainly can't use science to justify your knowledge 
of logic. So there are obvious counter-examples. Here's another one. Here's one of my favourite ones. Um, Rainbows are beautiful. I'm going to read you this quote, and then I will reveal who the quote's from, because that's quite interesting. Um, But this writer clearly gets this point. They say, intuition is the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. That's true in matters of ethics. It's no less true, they say, in science. Um, The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason itself is intuitive to the core. You just need to see that certain forms of argumentation are logical or are not logical and so on. You just need to intuit that. The point I trust is obvious. We cannot step out of the darkness without taking a first step. And reason, without knowing how, understands this axiom if it would understand anything at all. The reliance on intuition should be no more discomforting for the ethicist, talking about should I poison Aunt Mabel, than for the physicist, says new atheist writer Sam Harris in his book, The End of Faith, page 183. So, you know, New Atheists are not wrong about everything. Uh, They are right some of the time. (laughs) Um, In Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, in which he claims to show that science can subsume ethics, that science really can tell you whether or not you ought to poison Aunt Mabel... He says this, science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value human well-being. What he basically says in the book is, if you assume that human well-being is a good thing, then science can tell you everything about ethics because it can measure human well-being and does things contribute to their well-being or not. And then he says, so science can tell you everything about ethics. Apart from the fact that he had to assume that human well-being is a good thing. And that was not a scientific observation, but a moral intuition. So he explicitly contradicts himself um, in that book. As uh, G.K. Chesterton fantastic photo of G.K. Chesterton here in his cape. And you know, you know the story about G.K. Chesterton when he had, he had to send a telegram, shows how when he was, he had to send a telegram to his wife once um, because he, he'd got lost in thought on the train and the telegram was something to the effect of um, I'm in Margate, stop. Where should I be? Stop. <laughs> um, so, uh, soft spot in my heart for G.K. Chesterton. He said this, Let us clearly realise this fact that we do believe in a number of things that are just part of our existence but which cannot be demonstrated. All sane men, I say, believe firmly and unalterably in a a certain number of things that are unproved and unprovable. Example, every sane man believes that the world around him and the people in it are real and not his own delusion or a dream. None of you in here sincerely believe that, like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, you are not in this church. 
but actually plugged into a gigantic supercomputer that is feeding your brain false uh, nerve impulses to make it seem to you like you're in this room. Even if we admit that, well, I suppose it's possible that I'm in the matrix, but the burden of proof would be on anyone who wanted to come to us and say, I know it seems to you like you're in this room, but actually it's all a massive conspiracy and you're not. They would have a massive burden of proof. Um, We don't owe them an argument for saying, no, look, I'm here. (laughs) You know? As C.S. Lewis put it, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof, in that sense, rests upon the unprovable that just has to be seen. You just have to see it and trust it. You have to have faith in it. You have to trust it in order to be rational. Let's uh, introduce some of the scientific bits of data. Wilkins and Morland say that there's a significant and growing number of scientists, historians of scientists, philosophers of scientists, who see more scientific evidence now for a personal creator and designer than was available, say, 50 years ago. Um, Flew, in his book, um, says that some of the key points that really turned his mind around on the issue was evidence from science, evidence from science particularly about the universe having a beginning, a finite time ago in the past in Big Bang cosmology, and evidence about the the complexity of of DNA and of life at the, the, the very tiny biomolecular level, the difficulty of accounting for how you go from Um, non-living chemicals to life capable of undergoing evolution. How how do you bridge that gap from life to non-life? And he thought that the increased scientific information on that issue was making it harder and harder to say that you you could account for that change in naturalistic terms. He says, just at the bottom here, Um, It talks about Anthony Kenny and Nagel who've pointed out that Dawkins fails to address three major issues. As it happens, these are the same issues that have driven me to accept the existence of God. The laws of nature, life with its its teleological organisation, its purpose-driven organisation, and the existence of the universe. Bradley Monton, in his book Seeking God in Science, says an argument that starts from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist, an argument based on the improbability of the naturalistic origin of life from non-life are all somewhat plausible. Think about Big Bang cosmology just for a few moments. Bradley Monton again says, if the universe had a beginning then that lends support to what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Because, of course, for most of history, back from Aristotle uh, forward, certainly, people thought that the universe was just always there, just always been around. But as the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin um, said in a lecture delivered uh, in honour of Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday celebrations at a conference they had, he said this... All the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Not even on the balance of the evidence, but all the evidence we have 
says the universe had a beginning. New Scientist, which if you're a reader of New Scientist ever, um, is not exactly a bastion of conservative evangelical views on things, let's put it that way, um, says this in an editorial reporting on the conference. It said, the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of the theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. They've tried on various different models of the universe to dodge the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? Well, the only way to get anything or to explain anything surely is, is to get it from something able to give it. Okay? But nothing equals non-being, not anything. It's just a universal term of negation. Non-being can't do or give anything because it isn't anything. Okay? So it can't do or give anything. No physical reality can explain the existence of all physical reality, obviously. So having eliminated non-being and physical being as possible explanations, so, well, actually, those are both impossible explanations for the existence of physical reality, the only remaining possibility is a non-physical reality of some kind, i.e. some sort of supernatural being. Put it like this. Um, philosophers love taking little baby steps, like little stepping stones across the water to make sure that we're not going to get ourselves dropped in it at any stage. So we're a little bit finicky like this, but follow this through. Premise one, truth claim one. There was a first physical event that is entailed by Big Bang cosmology. I actually think there are good philosophical arguments for that as well, but let's let that slide. Uh, there's the quote from Valenkin there, atheist cosmologist. There was a first physical event. Premise two, every physical event has a cause, stands in some kind of causal relationship to something outside of itself. Physical events don't cause themselves. You can't cause yourself. You'd have to exist to be something before you can cause anything. So obviously you can't be self-caused. That's a non-coherent concept. So um, certainly in our experience of reality, to go back to empirical evidence, every physical event has a cause. And just to note with the atheist Raymond Tallis, 
where he says that recent attempts to explain how the universe came out of nothing, which rely on questionable notions such as spontaneous fluctuations in a quantum vacuum, which is a something and not a nothing, um, the notion of gravity, of negative energy, the inexplicable free gift of the laws of nature waiting in the wings for the moment of creation somehow, uh, reveal conceptual confusion beneath mathematical sophistication. Uh, he is not impressed. Nor is the quantum mechanics expert, philosopher of science, David Albert, um, reviewing Lawrence Krauss's book, um, David Albert says, um, let me pass this down for you. Basically, he says, in, in modern quantum mechanical theory, yes, um, there are certain arrangements of the fields that are talked about in the theory that aren't particles, and there are other arrangements of those fields that are particles. And it seems like the particles, as far as we can tell, just sort of randomly pop in and out of existence, given the background of the quantum mechanical laws and fields already existing. Because this is not a case of something coming into existence out of nothing. It is no more mysterious than the fact that some arrangements of my fingers don't correspond to fists, and that some arrangements of my fingers do correspond to fists, and that I can wiggle my fingers around so that randomly fists pop in and out of existence. But my fists are not appearing into existence out of nothing. Says it's like that, talking about quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is not a counterexample to the idea that every physical event has a cause. But if there was a first physical event and every physical event has a cause outside of itself, it follows deductively that therefore the first physical event had a cause. Carry that forward. The first physical event had a cause. Premise two, the cause of the first physical event cannot itself have been a physical event. It's not like you can say, what caused the first physical event? Oh, it was the previous physical event. Hang on a minute. No, no, no. What caused the first one? Uh, there is no previous physical event. By definition. From which it follows that the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause. Because there's, you see, something's either physical or it's not physical if it exists and we've eliminated the possibility of physical so therefore the first physical event had a non-physical cause as Christian philosopher Dallas Willard puts it the dependent character of physical states together with the completeness the finiteness of the series of dependencies of one thing being caused by another underlying the existence of any given physical state logically implies at least one self-existent, not self-cause, but self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. And if something non-physical is real, then naturalism is false. The existence of something non-physical that caused the existence of the physical universe isn't everything that Christians mean by the term God. But it is quite an important chunk of 
what we mean by the term God. And it's certainly enough to disprove naturalism. Or the argument from cosmic fine-tuning, a little video illustration here, supposing we had a machine that could generate universes. And on this universe-generating machine, we put one kind of knob for each law of nature we'd like to give our our universes that we might create. And we put little dials on them so we we can change how strong or weak they are relative to each other and so on. Well, supposing this machine had been set up to represent the laws and the strength of the laws that our universe has, we took just one of those features, like gravity there, and just changed it a tiny little bit, and then, keep everything out, you know, just change one thing, a tiny fraction, and press the create a universe button. Now, the astonishing surprise when physicists, cosmologists started running the numbers, as it were, um, was that the, the product of such an experiment, as it were, would be a dull, uninteresting, lifeless universe. Um, and they were quite kind of shocked by this discovery that the universe is, as, as um, Paul Davis put it, just right, like in the Goldilocks story. You know, one porridge is too hot for eating and one porridge is far too cold and horrible, but this porridge is just right. And our universe seems to be a just right universe for the existence of complex life, or indeed life, or indeed chemistry, or indeed matter. Um, most of the changes you would make on such a machine would have the result that, say, your, your, your universe that you would create would just go boom claps in such a short time that you wouldn't even get matter existing, let alone you and me. Well, what do you do with that empirical bit of data? You might argue like this, that that fine-tuning, that just-rightness is either due to to physical necessity or or chance or or maybe design. Those are all possible explanations. How would we kind of sort through them? Well, maybe if we could eliminate by sort of process of elimination, we can can whittle them down. Stephen Hawking, in his recent book, uh, The Grand Design, says that it does appear that the fundamental numbers, even the form of the laws of nature are not demanded by logical, physical necessity. They could have been different. They just happen to be that way. So we could perhaps cross out the the necessity possibility there, which leaves us with, well, either it's down to chance or it's the product of design. So how do we sort through those options? Um, Here's a way. Let me introduce to you the concept of specified complexity. It's a particular type of complexity that uh, reliably indicates intelligent design to us. Here's a, a long string of letters that you might draw out of your Scrabble bag whilst playing Scrabble, sight unseen. Okay, this particular sequence of letters, because it's long is very complex, is very unlikely. It's very unlikely that you would draw that sequence of letters out of your Scrabble bag. Nonetheless, were you to do so, you can very easily avoid saying, 
someone's pulled a magic trick. That, that, good grief, there's design. That, that doesn't scream design at you, does it? Um, it's just a long, random sequence of letters. Fine. It's, it's complex, it's unlikely, but it's not specified. And we'll see what that means here. Here's a sequence of letters that is specified. That is, this sequence of letters, D-O-G, hits an independently knowable pattern. We haven't just read that pattern off the event that happened to, to happen. We, we immediately see, oh, that is hitting something we already can independently know about. So it's specified. But it's not a very long sequence of letters. It's not very unlikely when you're playing Scrabble that occasionally you pull out a short word or two. It doesn't occasion any surprise. You certainly don't need to say, who's pulling a trick? Do you? But what if, what if you were playing Scrabble and you took out the Scrabble letters from the Scrabble bag one at a time and put them in a row and this happened? All things do become, have become and will become, some by nature, some by art, i.e. design, and some by chance. Plato, Laws, Book 10. Well, then I think you might be a bit suspicious. <laughs> you might be a bit surprised, and you might think that the best explanation for what had just happened was obviously that there was some kind of intelligence playing a role in explaining that event happening. Because this is both unlikely, massively unlikely, and specified. It hits, even if you didn't know about Plato's Law Book 10, you would see that it hits the independently knowable pattern of, of English grammar. And when something is both very complex and specified, then in our experience, when we know where it came from, it came from an intelligence. We intuitively spot design this way. Books have authors, musical scores have composers, portraits have artists, computer programmers have, pro have programmers. So we have reason to infer on the basis of our repeated empirical experience that anything that we come across that exhibits this kind of complexity is designed. Indeed, to appeal to intelligence to explain that specified complexity is simply to appeal to a cause known from our experience to be, to be capable of producing that effect, which, interestingly enough, is the, the central rule of scientific explanation followed by Charles Lyell and after him, Charles Darwin, in offering scientific explanations for things. So as Hawking says, the problem is, for our theoretical models of, of the Big Bang to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. What he's actually saying there, in other words, is that the fine-tuning of the universe is an example of specified complexity. He's really putting that in here 
to an argument, we could say things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed, the universe exhibits specified complexity, so it was probably designed. That, that, going back to our former way of arguing, we've, via that method, eliminated chance as well as necessity, leaving us only with design. That's a kind of negative way of putting the argument by elimination, and there was a sort of positive method of putting the argument there by inference as well. Hawking's real objection when the rubber hits the road goes like this. If there were enough different universes, all with different tunings of the laws and arrangements of the laws and so on, then the apparent specified fine-tuning of our universe actually wouldn't be complex enough to justify the design inference. It would still be specified, but if you've got lots of opportunities, lots of throws of the dice, as it were, going on, you make it not actually all that improbable. You make it more like drawing dog out than drawing out that big long quotation if you've got you know, six gazillion games of Scrabble going on at the same time. That ups your chances of longer words coming out by chance, you kind of see. Premise two, and I put it in red here for reasons we'll see, there are enough different universes. Conclusion, therefore, the fine-tuning, we can avoid inferring design. We can get away without inferring design. But um, as agnostic Jim Holt says... Since other universes are, by definition, not observable from our own, you can't empirically detect them from our own, the burden of proof is clearly on those who claim that they do exist. Philosopher Chad Meister notes that there is currently no experimental, no empirical, no scientific evidence in support of the existence of many universes. Paul Davies, I mentioned him earlier, um, the Just Right Universe. He wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. Um, up here. He says, look, multiverse theories just shift the problem up a level. The problem just shifts, like moving one of those annoying ruckles in the carpet you stamp on and it appears over there. Um, It just moves up a level. You only have to list the many assumptions that underpin the multiverse theory. There's got to be some sort of universe-generating mechanism in place that's spitting out all of these other different fine-tuned universes and indeed that mechanism itself in order to do that has to exhibit specified complexity so the problem just reappears at a different level Um, the multiverse theory says Davis cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton on the same issue He says, there are problems that make the multiverse hypothesis worrisome. (laughs) It's unclear how we could have evidence for the existence of spatio-temporally isolated universes, as for even some ideas of maybe connected different regions with different laws and so so on. Ask yourself, how do we get the whole physical reality that would allow our universe to produce another, or or a bubble universe to to pop off from another one and so on. Would there not be improbable fine-tuning associated with the existence of the physical realities that cause the bubbling of different universes off each other? 
So again, he's admitting that if you try and introduce multiple universes um, to avoid the design inference, the ruckle in the carpet just appears further up the hallway. I think I'm probably going to have to very soon draw my remarks to a close because uh, I do want to make sure that we've got a good half hour of Q&A. Um, I think the same kind of issue about specified complexity arises at the, the origin of life. Life defined as something capable of undergoing evolution, something that can have information in it that can be passed along but that can, be, that can change, can have mistakes in it or whatever, that could be material for natural selection. Even to have something capable of evolving, it would seem to be something that itself contains huge amounts of functional specified complexity in, say, the DNA or the RNA or whatever um, precursor you might like to, to think about. Um, and atheist Thomas Nagel, just as much as uh, Anthony Flew, uh, who we mentioned at the beginning, I think this is a, as a, as a big issue. Um, and Nagel says, uh, the dominant scientific consensus face, faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough. Um, the coming into existence of the genetic code seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable by physical law alone. Um, there's a few uh, book recommendations, uh, again, particularly on the origin of life issue. Stephen Meyer's The Signature in the Cell um, is the uh, go-to book. It's quite a doorstop of a book, but it's a very, very readable book. It'll really give you a fantastic introduction to that, that world of origin of life studies. Um, I had a series of quotes from places like New Scientist admitting again and again that, that no burden of proof has been met in terms of getting a naturalistic explanation of the origin of life. It is just a complete mystery so far as uh, naturalistic views of the thing are concerned. And you could mount exactly the same kind of argument from specified complexity from the letters in the DNA book of information, as it were, as you could from, from Shakespeare's work. Fascinating quote from Bradley Monton here. Intelligent design needs to be taken more seriously than a lot of its opponents are willing to do. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer, and indeed I think there's some evidence that that intelligent designer is God. Now, he's, he's still an atheist. He's still an atheist because he thinks he has other reasons for not believing in God. But he does have the intellectual honesty to admit that this area that science has revealed to us in the last 50 years since the discovery of DNA and so on um, is something that is a problem uh, for the naturalistic uh, world view. I'm not going to talk about a uh, problem of, uh, of mind or uh, indeed what was, what was called in the 19th century the introduction of scientific um, scriptural criticism, um, which basically meant assuming that naturalism was true and then doing your scriptural criticism. Um, we live in the midst of something of a revolution uh, in Jesus studies. Um, just a few recommended books for your reading there, particularly um, I mentioned Hume's Abject Failure, um, the coming realisation from contemporary philosophy that David Hume's very influential arguments against the believability of the miraculous are actually um, very, very shaky. 
um, and don't really stand in the way of us being able to get into the, the actual issue of what is the historical evidence and how do we best explain it without people saying, you can't even think about miracle as a possible explanation. You just can't rule that out a priori from your armchair. You actually have to sort of get stuck into the issue of how do we explain things like the origin of the church from that group of dispirited disciples, the empty tomb, um, the, the groups of people who at least sincerely believed that they met with the resurrection Jesus after he was clearly crucified to death by the Romans, that these are bits of historical data that you can have confidence in, even if you thought that the, the New Testament Gospels were generally unreliable. If you bend over backwards to the sceptic here and say, let's assume for the sake of argument that the New Testament is a generally unreliable historical report. Let's just take the standard historical tests that sceptical New Testament scholars would rely upon to go through a text and say, if there's a bit of information that passes several of these tests, then that, is, that at least is reliable information that we need to take into account. And if you do that with the New Testament, you still get a crucified Jesus buried in a tomb that was found empty on the third day, who then multiple individuals and groups of people apparently sincerely claimed that they had met him alive after the death and they were prepared to be martyred for that claim. And this bunch of monotheistic Jews changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, the day when the tomb was found empty, uh, and started worshipping, worshipping Jesus as someone who really could stand uh, in the shoes of God to them in their liturgical practices. Um, And how do you explain that? Um, So, there's a few very interesting developments uh, in the field And I think that at each negative point of explanatory failure to meet the burden of proof that naturalism does seem to put on itself, that actually at each of those areas there are not just an an argument where you can say, look, you failed to meet your burden of proof, but actually an argument where you can say, and here is a positive case to be made from that very bit of data that naturalism can't explain a positive argument that says, but theism can explain it. Um, and those are points in favour of having a, a theistic worldview. So I think I've, I've said more than enough, and we shall take some Q&A time. Thank you very much for keeping your thinking hats on for an hour there. Wonderful. Thank you. Shall I just give you a massive round of Stretch. I don't get to see some of those seats, but they're uncomfortable, aren't they? Let me raise some money for you, Chase. So, thank you so much for uh, speaking. Mm. We're going to have some questions. Just to say that, um, in, in a way, the, tonight has been sponsored by Kevin Bywater and Summit Ministries, yes. uh, allowing you to come out and he's enabled us. So, we'll pass on our thanks to Kevin. Yeah, please and do. You're speaking at Summit. So, I'm speaking at the Summit uh, conference on C.S. Lewis tomorrow on C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, which is the same title as my 
other recent book, which is also at the back. Thank you very much. Shameless self-advertising. Uh, you can buy it through Amazon if you don't want to buy it tonight. You can even get it for your Kindle uh, through Amazon. Uh, so there you go. I don't even own a Kindle. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. You've got the book. Yeah. Um, the book's open to questions. David, you have your hand up, so um, I'll give you the mic. <laughs> yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, well, you still started off, and I agree with you about the new atheist lack of ethics. Um, because when I was younger, you know, it could be a humanist or an atheist, mm. quite interested in religion. Um, mm. But you, I thought you were slightly misleading, quoting, I can't, Alex, whatever. Uh, Rosenberg, yeah. Yes, saying that that was the naturalist view. I mean, actually, by the end, I was worried because you actually kind of did, by coming onto the Christianism stuff, mm. come up with these sort of, an update of monkeys and typewriters, if you mm. put it mm. in that slightly scary way, I'm just trying to round everybody from sort of worship at the moment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, essentially, I mean, for, for me, the ethics is a far more practical issue, mm. actually, because, you know, we've got DNA, we've got nanotechnology, we've got numbers, and whereas I come from a more continental type of philosophy, so I'm right. about nature, and that's what I think. So I, I would have really needed needed to go into perhaps more an area of, of talking about the area of metaethics and the, and the moral argument and so on, and, and particularly when you get into that area, clearing up um, the thing of, of um, Christians are not saying that people who are atheists can't believe in or can't do the right thing. Um, that it's not a matter of saying, if you don't believe in God then you can't know the difference between right and wrong, or you can't be a nice person, or um, you can't uh, collaboratively in society come up with um, practical guidelines that make society you know, rub along quite well, because we need some rules to follow, and we want ones that make us happy, don't we? So surely with Sam Harris we can just say, so science can tell us about ethics in, in that sort of pragmatic sense. Um, well, I think 
at least for the sake of argument, I would be happy to say, yeah, but you did explicitly have to make an exception for saying, if this is going to be talking about objective values, which is what Sam Harris wants to say, that, we, that science can tell you about objective right and wrong, right and wrong that, that's something that we discover rather than we simply invent because it happens to suit us or whatever, um, that he had to make this exception and say, once you grant that human flourishing or whatever is a good thing, then science is very helpful practically at helping you to do the right thing and work out your ethical conundrums and so on. And, and you know, it might be. Um, but the really interesting issue, question for the philosopher is, hang on a minute, what was, this, what was this sudden introduction of this idea of objectivity in morality and what kind of worldview best fits with that? What, what kind of thing is an objective moral value that we just sort of bump into in reality in a, in a non-physical sense? There's this, this real, true, not description of how we behave, but prescription of how we should behave, some sort of sense of that we are really objectively obligated to behave in certain ways and not to behave in, in other ways. And where do you, what sort of home do you have in your worldview for such a thing if your worldview says the only things that are ultimately are real are impersonal, non-intentional realities, physical, material reality? Um, doesn't a worldview that says that the basic reality is a personal, intentional reality, a personal reality, make much better sense of the existence of a prescribing, obligating, objective fact that you can stumble into, that you know, but that you don't know through empirical means. Um, and that's really the sort of meta-ethical issue that, that, that would sort of agree with people like Nietzsche, who, who you mentioned, who, who sort of said he thought that the consequence of, of getting rid of God and adopting naturalism was that there's no more objective standard, that we are just left adrift. You know, whether, whether are we going now, thus spake Zarathustra and, and, and so on. Um, so certainly, of course, there are atheists who believe in objective moral values and do a really good job of defending them, actually. There's a, a fantastic book um, called Whatever Happened to Good and Evil um, by an atheist moral philosopher called Russ Schaefer-Landau. And I think he does a fantastic job of arguing against moral relativism and moral subjectivism, saying there really are objective moral facts. Um, he just thinks that... that once you've defended the existence of such things, all you need to sort of say is, and I don't think that has anything to do with God, I'm not impressed by the arguments for tying that observation to a belief in God, and off we go. And it's at that stage that I then differ from him, and I would start agreeing with other atheists who would say, well, for example, J.L. Mackey, in his book uh, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, another atheist philosopher, moral philosopher, who said... If there were such a thing as objective moral values, it looks pretty obvious that the best explanation for that would be, would be God. That would imply God. But since I'm an atheist and I don't think there is a God, <laughs> therefore ethics must not be objective. It must be purely subjective. Ethics must be a matter of us inventing right and wrong, of inventing the rules of the gentleman's club. <laughs> 
however we, we decide to arrange them kind of thing and that's what ethics is about this purely pragmatic um, relative culturally dependent sort of thing um, and I just happen to think that both of those atheists are partly right and partly wrong you know Russ Schaefer Landau is right when he says that there are objective moral values and J.L. Mackey is right when he says that if there were such a thing that would imply that there's a god um, you know <laughs> And if, if they're both right in that sense, then, then fundamentally both of them are wrong in terms of their worldview. So you, you can make the moral argument purely by quoting from different atheist philosophers who will, of course, disagree with the, each other on the other premises of, of the argument. Well, I'm going to say the other thing that fundamental points are Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the ones that I quoted, for example, Anthony Flew, really didn't seem to have anything to do with, with ethical grounds. For him, it was all about the Big Bang. And he, he'd always said, as an atheist, he'd always kind of said that if the universe had a beginning, that would be kind of embarrassing for an atheistic worldview, and it would be a problem. But he used to say things like, but, you know, science changes all the time, and the evidence isn't really in yet. And, you know, over the years, he's obviously kept a, an eye on the the science and become more and more convinced that the science really did say that there was a beginning and that he had to kind of wrestle with that more seriously and when he did he thought there was power in that kind of cosmological uh, argument yeah thank you any other questions Jeff um, yes so you always had the problem I've had with the sort of science disproves God kind of approach mm. um is, is is partly, and I wonder if you can sort of put the, the, the way the argument is, how it's justified, mm. um, I suppose, is that absence of proof is not proof of absence. Scientific uh, approach, the scientific approach is you assume the simplest explanation that fits all the facts mm. until you find something else. Mm that then requires that you make your, your theory more complex. We did quite happily mm. with mm. Newtonian mechanics for quite a long time. Yeah. All, all the senses that we had at those times mm. showed us that that was a pretty full and complete mm. justification explanation of the universe. Then we started to get some other tools, some more powerful tools, and we found that we needed a much more complex mm. uh, theory, and we got on to quantum mechanics and the various developments mm. of that. Mm. So the scientific approach admits that one can never be 100% sure that you've got all the complexity in, mm. whether or not you rely on senses and how you, what those senses are and the equipment that you use to do it. So I can quite happily see that a scientist, and I'm a scientist myself, mm. right. can say on the balance of the evidence, I can see from the evidence and my interpretation that I don't believe there's a God, but how you can then go from that to say there is no God and nobody mm. else should believe in it, and I know Richard Dawkins says we shouldn't believe because mm. it has these consequences, mm. but how you can get to the stage, or how anyone can get to the stage where they can feel that they can say there definitively isn't a God. Mm. 
Richard, interesting you mentioned Richard Dawkins on that because in The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins explicitly says that he can't say that definitively there isn't a God. He says that I think the evidence is overwhelmingly against it, but I can't prove that there is no God. Um, but I think when you're talking in terms of what viewpoint on something do you believe, um, to say that you believe something is not the same as saying I'm 100% sure of it. There are very, very few things in life that we are 100% sure of or, or rationally 100% sure of, at least. You know, um, that maybe comes in very small areas of philosophy and mathematics, and that's about it, I would think. Um, uh, our immediately sensory experience, you know, whether or not there really is a chair there, I'm, I'm 100% sure that it looks like there's a chair, <laughs> um, but I can't be 100% sure that there is one. Um, but nevertheless, I can say, but surely the, the entirely rational view to have is that there is a chair there. And the burden of proof is on someone who disagrees with me, and I, I am confident that there's a chair. And it's in that sense that Richard Dawkins would say he's, he's an atheist. I'm confident that atheism is right, but I can't 100% prove it. Um, but that's enough um, to, to say that I believe that viewpoint and to want to advocate for it and so on. Just as much as you know, we as Christians don't, you know, don't need to be in the position of saying, I am 100% sure that Christianity is true. Um, we just need to think that it is more plausibly true than false and that we are not only just having an intellectual belief about God and Jesus and so on, but that we're combining that with a trust in him and a desire to follow him and so on. That We have that, that belief that combined with a belief in. Um. John, Yeah, fantastic question. Um, interestingly, some of these discoveries about fine-tuning have, have, have given us at least perhaps a partial answer to that question. Um, that before we knew about the fine-tuning, almost that was a, a more pressing question in a sense. Because, for example, we know that the chemistry of life is based on carbon, and that carbon was manufactured in stars um, that have since they formed manufactured carbon in them and exploded to distribute that carbon so that we can have carbon on this planetary body which can then be used in organic chemistry um, and that, so that's not the generation of stars that, the, that are there now you, stars to form and do that process of carbon formation and explosion to distribute take a certain amount of time. Um, time during which the universe is expanding and getting bigger and so on. So actually, in order for there to be the carbon, and it was actually, this is one of the first things of fine-tuning, it was discovered by an atheist scientist called Fred Hoyle, 
who you may have heard of, who discovered, uh, um, I don't really know the, the ins and outs of this, but a certain um, resonance, it was called, of fine-tuning in the sort of chemistry in the stars, that there was a sort of very fine knife edge that um, could allow for the production of carbon before it got destroyed again in the processes inside the star. Um, and this kind of discovery of this, this knife edge bit of uh, physics uh, sort of really disturbed him. And he, he said, even as an atheist, that the, the common sense interpretation of, of the fact suggested that some kind of super intellect had monkeyed with physics. And he really didn't, <laughs> didn't like that idea. Um, so one of these fine-tuning conditions that, that Fred Hoyle actually discovered is that in order for there to be organic life based on carbon chemistry, you, you have to have a universe that's about as old as ours, to have gone through that process of carbon formation in stars that live long enough to do it and then explode it about the place and so on. So actually, a lot earlier in the history of our universe, you couldn't have had life because it didn't have the carbon there for the organic chemistry to happen. And that kind of explains why, our unit, why we're, we're here now rather than earlier, uh, as it were. And that, of course, is also tied up with how big the universe has got over that time. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Now, I don't know the term specified mm, and mm. what it means in its scientific or philosophical use, but the examples you gave, actually those, those things weren't specified in advance, just as no, we right. weren't specified in advance. We have become, yeah. we have evolved, developed, but we weren't pre-specified, apart from you know, perhaps in God's mind. Mm. Well, it's the... I'm not sure what, how, what level of detail to go in, in, into here. Certainly, if, if any mathematicians are thinking, or scientists thinking in terms of setting rejection regions in advance in, in statistics, it's, it's, the, it's not that the specification is set in advance so much as that it's independent of the event. It's not just read off the event. It's not like, um, think of an example, taking a, a bow and arrow, shooting an arrow at the wall, taking a pot of paint, walking up to the wall, going up to the arrow, drawing a target around the arrow, and saying, look what a fantastic archer I am. Yeah. Um, you have to not just look at an event and, and then say, hey, let's take that event as the specification. Um, so it was like with, um, with drawing out a sentence from a Scrabble bag. Um, even if that particular sentence had never before existed, okay, clearly we can issue, we can, someone can issue new sentences. So it's not pre-specified in that sense, but nonetheless it's a sentence and it, it, it hits the independent specification of adhering to the laws of English grammar. The laws of English grammar exist um, independently of that particular Event and are knowable without knowing about that particular event. And it's in that sense that specification is being talked about. So it's not, it's not that we... Mm. 
then you couldn't have said that that word pulled out of the Scrabble bag as dog was a word. So before humans were created, you couldn't have said that the event of humans being created was you know, specified. <laughs> Um, hmm. Well, well, no one. Yes, this is very tricky because no one would have said anything if there were no humans there at all, and, and no God as well. But if there's a God, he he would foreknow the existence. So it, it does. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a somewhat um, tricky concept to nail down in the in the particulars. And if you do want to sort of nail down in the particulars, I can. <coughs> recommend some of the more sort of technical uh, readings on it but I, I try and introduce it with fairly um, sort of homely examples to get this this idea of um, uh, not just a pattern that, that you can only know about from the event itself but something that it is possible to know about whether or not anyone does but it's possible to know about it independently of the particular Event, um, so um, and it, that's the sense of of, of specification, and um, yeah, the Scrabble one. The um, sometimes people you, you use the physical one. Sometimes you think of Mount Rushmore in America, um, the four presidents' faces carved into the the mountainside. They're very unlikely shapes of rock to stumble upon. Okay. But then the backside of the mountain that doesn't have any faces carved into it is a very unlikely shape of rock to stumble upon. It's probably only one mountain in the whole world that has exactly that shape of rock on it. So both the front and the back of Mount Rushmore are unlikely. So there's something else apart from the unlikelihood of the the shapes of the front of the mountain that indicates design to us. And um, the suggestion here is that it's in in combination with that unlikelihood, that complexity, because if something is just the product of a law, you know, then you've explained it. The law explains it. But if it didn't have to happen, if it's contingent, if it's unlikely or complex, that in itself is not enough. But certainly in our experience, when we go oh, those are human faces. Not necessarily that I knew about JFK. Um, I didn't have to know about that mountain, uh, but I did have to know about human faces. If I was an alien from Alpha Centauri, and I don't, you know, we don't have faces on Alpha Centauri, okay, and I come down in my flying saucer, land in front of the JFK sculpture. I've never seen a face before in my life, and I don't know what one is. I look at it and go, oh, what an un, you know, that's an unlikely rock formation, so is the back, nothing to explain. I, it wouldn't trigger a design inference in me because I was ignorant about the specification. Um, but it's like that for cryptographers, say. Um, you might have an apparently random string of letters um, and nothing about it seems to you to scream out this needs explaining in terms of design but then if the cryptographer comes along and says here's the code Um, you know, this particular code exists Um, and you can know about the code 
code is not something you know just by reading this string of letters, then immediately you go, oh, oh, look, you can translate it. It's obviously designed. Um, and it's in that kind of a sense that the, the, the independence of the specification exists, has to exist for the um, design inference to, to work. Yeah, thank you. Good question. Probably one more question. Uh, Peter's not rushing away in the end, yeah. so we have got others a bit back in church. Jonathan, welcome and you for the final question. Um, as Christians, we tend to think of our consciences as going as a sort of part and parcel of there being an objective, objective values of good and evil. Mm. Um, is that a, a, a right way of thinking? Is, is our consciences part of the evidence that we can bring to bear for there being mm. objective values of good and evil, or is that a false thinking? That's a, I think that's a really good key question. Um, because on the one hand, you might want to say our consciences can sometimes lead us astray. And we can um, develop our moral sensitivities and so on. Um, clearly, whole societies can develop their moral sensitivities such that they suddenly change laws that they were comfortable with before, like owning slaves or something. Um, but on the other hand, if that's going to be more than merely a societal change, if that is a change for the better, we nonetheless have to um, think that we have this, this insight or intuition into moral reality that, um, that we are relying upon when we make that judgment. Um, so it's a little bit like the, the question about science again being, being fallible but nonetheless having enough confidence to say although I could be wrong about this I think the most reasonable view to take is this and it, it's very much the same you might argue in both science and in, in ethics uh, and indeed only a belief in the objectivity of moral values would allow you to say, I might be wrong about this, but, you see, even the intuition that we can be mistaken in our moral views is itself an intuition that there really are objective facts of the matter that we might get right or wrong. Because if there are no objective moral facts to get right or wrong, it makes no sense to say, I might be wrong about this, but I think this is the right thing to do. Um, so not only do we, I think we have very clear cases of moral insight, I, you know, I hope no one here would disagree with the claim um, torturing small children just for fun is wrong. Okay, um, that is a very clear case. Obviously, there are very difficult moral choices, unclear cases that we wrestle with. But even there, the very fact that we think it worth wrestling and perhaps having a, a sort of turgid moral 
conscience kind of feeling over, oh, I don't know what the right thing, did I do the right thing or not? Oh, I kind of feel torn. That in itself is also an indication to us that there is some fact of the matter that is worth us worrying after and perhaps feeling torn about. Um, So I think on both of those indications, we have to say, yeah, we we have a fallible moral insight, but we do have a moral insight. Just as much as, as the fact that we have a fallible insight to the workings of nature, that can improve over time, such that Newtonian mechanics gets replaced by Einstein and enfolds Newton within it and so on. Um, it's still a good approximation at, at, you know, at, at macro objects at finite speeds below the speed of light. But if you want to go outside of that, you need to add a few whistles and bells. And we've learned that over time. <laughs> but just in the, uh, in the moral field, you know, that kind of fallibility of science or, or the improvement of our scientific understanding, far from undermining our confidence in science as a project... The very fact that we think we've come to a better understanding kind of increases our confidence in science because we kind of go, oh, good. Although we do get things wrong sometimes, at least we're, we're getting an increasingly better understanding. Um, and so let's stick with the project. Uh, and I think the same thing should be said of, of our moral insight as well. Thank you very much. Big round of applause. Thank you.